I think he knew that his death was not going to be as wonderful as this. So that's why he spent so much time thinking about making it wonderful in the movie. As you know, he died on a park bench in Washington, D.C. He was walking along with Gwen Verdon. They had just watched a rehearsal of Sweet Charity, which was opening that evening in Washington. He just stopped and he said, I don't feel well. He laid down on the bench and he died. Hello, 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 and welcome to Conversations. I'm Ileana. And I'm Patrick. Hi. We decided that we would continue with Conversations, and so here we are with episode six. Yeah, unfortunately not from Khan anymore. Not from Khan anymore, that is correct. The format's going to change. In keeping in the Khan spirit, the convival spirit, we would get together and we would talk about films that have been to the festival. Yeah, I wonder how many of these puns are still to come today. But oh, no, we let's will. Look, let's see. <laughs> we then decided that this might be a way to pursue this thing, to keep rolling it. But I do love the idea of like a sonnet that is rigid with its rules. You still are able to figure out ways to speak to the things that you love. Yeah, and so we can always, when we look at one film and we have this idea that alternatingly... One of us chooses the film for the next week, and then we stick with that decision. And so the only limitation here is it has to have played once at Cannes. So for this week, it was Patrick's turn. And what did you choose? I chose All That Jazz, a film that is very dear to me. It's, uh, it's a film from 1979, and it's a film that I only discovered, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago, and that since then has lived rent-free on my mind and I have thought back to it often. And yeah, I think it's just such a fascinating detour of what biopics can be, what biopics aspire to be. And here I felt like, oh, if biopics were more like this, I would probably enjoy this entire genre more than I do usually, <laughs> especially when it comes to the Oscar season, the award season. Yeah. And I thought this would be a nice entry. It's also, you know, a Palme d'Or winner of 1980. So I thought, oh, why not start with something that maybe isn't even so much talked about these days, but that is certainly, if you talk to cinephiles, that is up there, you know, among the very best, most appreciated films. Mm -hmm. And this is also very unique in, a, in its biopic portrayal because we have Bob Fosse, who is, as you would like, if you would like to introduce or talk more about the production or the history of this film. Yeah, give us a little context here. So this film uh, at first was released in New York. I think it has like a limited release. So maybe LA and New York at the time. That was in 1979, actually. There was a, during the award season in December 79. And then... It was shown in Cannes half a year later or so, and I think this is a strategy that today wouldn't really work anymore because these film festivals these days, they really, you know, they hunt these world premieres. They, mm -hmm. they chase them. They chase the filmmakers. They change the companies. They want to work with them together. I mean, we had this year, for instance, I think Cannes really wanted to have the new Miyazaki you know, but they didn't get it. And now it's supposedly playing at Venice. But 
Yeah, so those things are always at play. And so I think this also marks just a different era, right? When such things were possible. I think my research of other films have also noticed that uh, it didn't used to be the case that films would premiere at the film festivals necessarily. They may have played before in one city of, you know, of the country where it was shot or something. Uh, yeah, but in any case, so this was a year when uh, in 1980, it won the Palme d'Or together with uh, Kurosawa's Kagemusha. I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, so, and the Palme d'Or was in that year, it was handed to Bob Fosse by Kirk Douglas, uh, was at the time the jury president. And maybe to give us also a broader context of that year of 79, it's incredible to me. So Kramer versus Kramer was number one at the box office of that year. And if we compare that to our contemporary cinematic landscape, I mean, you can just basically refer to certain superhero movies right it's it's marvel it's basically marvel or disney we also have of course avatar uh james cameron so so we really have these tentpole movies but it's amazing that sort of relationship marriage drama would you know would be able to climb the ladder to number one of the box office that time of that time we also have uh rocky too you know that sort of in some ways, a precursor of these franchises. And we have the first Star Trek film, number four, and Alien at number five. So you have those films, of course. You have those more like sci-fi and uh, more like commercial films. But then number six, for instance, you have Apocalypse Now. Mm. And even this film, All That Jazz, that by no means is conventional or by no means tries to appeal to a mass audience or something, that was number 17 at the box office of that year. I don't know if that were still possible if we saw a movie like Babylon, for instance, that premiered last year, right? And that basically bombed at the box office. So yeah, so just for uh, contextualization. And what is All That Jazz? What is that about? All That Jazz is a portrait of... um well-acclaimed choreographer. We have Roy Scheider playing Joe Gideon. He simultaneously is trying to cast and execute a musical production. On Broadway? On Broadway, yes. He's trying to cut a comedy feature as well as manage three main women in his life and his own impending health concerns. Yeah, and of course, Joe Gideon is basically an alter ego of Bob Fosse. He casted himself here uh, in, uh, through uh, Roy Scheider, and Roy Scheider was not the first person uh, to be approached. I think for a long time, they thought it would be uh, Richard Dreyfus. Yes. And there were, was also Warren Beatty was in, in talks to play the Fosse alter ego. Yeah, I believe Dreyfus, he quit after eight weeks of rehearsal because he wasn't convinced that he could do the dance numbers with confidence. And Warren Beatty allegedly said that he would do the film only if, well, spoiler alert, the character did not die at the end. Right. 
this is maybe more of an like older understanding of as what actors are willing to present themselves to a wider audience, right? And I guess to some extent, we still have that these days. Like we have The Rock or we have Vin Diesel, you know, those kind of alpha males who don't want to be associated with weakness. And if they fight against each other, they don't want to be the loser of their confrontation. So there are still continuity lines when it comes to that. But I think that's really something we have more and more overcome. Even though, let's think of maybe Tom Hanks, right? He was also, throughout his career, he tried to be the family guy, you know, and the with Tom Cruise as well, who doesn't take these roles anymore. But at least in the past, he used to, right? In uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, uh, Magnolia, right? There he plays a really uh, shady guy. But in any case, so we're digressing here. But because of this, Bob Foss, who has always um, been enamored by the career of Fred Astaire, was also quite eager to feature in his own film as Joe Gideon about his own, well, self. However, he was discouraged by his producer and co-writer, Robert Arthur. Author. And Author. Yeah, it's, yeah, and maybe just to Fossey himself. What happens uh, when you, you can't think of a step or what happens when you see in their eyes they don't like the step that you're giving them? He was very curious. He was hungry for information. Did he bring out in you any traits, Bob, that you didn't know you had? Yes, niceness. <laughs> 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 I didn't know I had that at all. Fosu was born in 27, I think, in 1927 in Chicago, the son of two immigrant parents. And these, so the father was not Norwegian-American, the mother was Irish-American, and they both tried to pursue a career in showbiz, but it didn't quite work out. But in, 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 in any case, uh, rest assured, the mother always tried to get her children dancing. Mm. But of course, at the time gender concepts were a bit more rigid. So Bob Fosse, even though he was early on, he was interested in dancing. He was rather the accompaniment of his older sister. He had five siblings or so, but it was only when he accompanied his sister that he really saw that this is something he's very interested in. And But then the depression hit uh, the Americans hard and the family couldn't afford the training anymore. So he, very early on, he went his own way. He found some ways to support himself. He found some scholarships or some stipends that helped him to become a better and better dancer. And yeah, I think that was basically through one of his early lovers, who I think also was his first wife, that she enabled him to make his first step in the showbiz. I forgot her name. Joan McCracken. Yeah, that's it. And nowadays it seems he's especially remembered as a choreographer, Fosse. But of course he has his little filmography that is not too shabby either, I think, and worth discussing. And this started out with uh, Sweet Charity in 1969, a film that neither of us have seen uh, at the point of the recording. And I think this is already something that we can look back at later in our discussion. So this was a film based upon um, Fellini's Knights of... Uh, Kabiria. Kabiria, exactly. So 
there has been a strong link between Fossi and uh, Fellini. I, Fellini sort of served as a inspiring figure for his career. And then we have Cabaret, which might be the best known of his works to this day. Mm -hmm. Also, of course, due to the musical uh, version of that as well, uh, because Cabaret was the film based on the musical. Mm -hmm. And then there's his 1974 film, Lenny, based on Lenny Bruce, the comedian. And this was played by Dustin Hoffman at the time. I think if you look up that film and if you want to see it, it's interesting because this was very much a contrast to his uh, cabaret, which was really uh, less chivalrous. Uh, staging was very colorful of, uh, you know, the, a portrait of the Kit Kat Club in Berlin of uh, of the 30s or late late 20s in Berlin in the uh, Weimar Republic, and Lenny interest to that is black and white indie filmmaking about this uh, stand-up comedian. Uh, so, so I think that was a very deliberate and interesting choice by Fosse. And then there's all that jazz. And all that jazz is essentially a semi-autobiographical portrait that it, that completely goes against the conventions of what the biopic was. I don't actually know. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's very unusual just looking at the idea that the filmmaker would make his own biopic or their own biopic before because usually other people would do that with you. <laughs> yeah. Like you can even look back uh, to Tom Ford and young Mr. Lincoln, for instance. So those kind of ideas. And I think there has always been part of cinema that we look back at history and we either adapt novels or plays and uh, form them in into a film and also about uh, prominent figures of history. Mm -hmm. And here, the audacity to do that with yourself and be also really don't restrict yourself too much and try to be, be open even to the dirty parts of your biography and of your life. I think that's uh, that at the time was seen as very audacious, but also as very brave. And his last film, which unfortunately we also didn't have the chance to see, is Star 80 in 1983, which apparently is also, in a sense, uh, similar to All That Jazz, but less comedic, because with all the grittiness of All That Jazz, it's still mm -hmm. a very fun and funny film as well. So, And All That Jazz is the one we want to talk about today. It's interesting. There is a lot to say about the legacy Bob Fosse really paved the way for, perhaps, or initiated, and we can still, you know, trace his influence in uh, contemporary artists or artists of the '80s and '90s. But it should be said that if you want to see all the jazz, it's not so easy these days, because uh, as of now, I think uh, there is no really, you know, there's no way to stream it anywhere and uh if you want to do it okay we figured out that there is on youtube there is an uploaded video of that entire film but who knows how long that's still online right especially yeah. now that we've signaled it <laughs> <laughs> right because we know how influential our podcast is well luckily we saw it because you are a blu-ray aficionado and you had this on blu-ray one should say maybe here in germany 
this is also just not available on Blu-ray. So I had to, I had to order it from Spain basically. So I have the Spanish Blu-ray here because of course the ideal way would be the Criterion Blu-ray, which you can purchase in the United States and Canada, I think. But here it's just not available because of these uh, geo restrictions for the Blu-ray players and so on. But yeah, so just uh, be aware of that. If you want to see that film, it might be a bit more tricky than one would wish. But who knows, maybe it's still on YouTube and they actually uploaded the Criterion version. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I hope for you that it's still online there. And about Fosse, I don't know, maybe it's good to know that there was this miniseries on FX in 2019 starring Sam Rockwell and uh, Michelle Williams. This name still comes up uh, occasionally, but even there, I think they really tried also to present the madness and, you know, show this sort of intense but demanding genius. And of course, this is a role I think many actors would just be happy Love to play. To have, yeah, definitely. Many people have also stated that they are huge fans of Fosse among them. Mm -hmm. Sophia Coppola, Wes Anderson, Lynn Manor, uh, Miranda, who I think was also a producer of that FX show. Mm -hmm. So just for a bit of context, and I think we can dive more into that later as well yes. as we talk about the actual film. So, Aliana, maybe because, you know, you've grown up in the United States, yeah. uh, you grew up in New York and I wonder if you had any relationship with Fosse just if there was a figure that would come up in I don't know in like high school or like how would you encounter Bob Fosse if at all unfortunately I didn't encounter him the way the many women in his life encountered him <laughs> however I have been familiar with him he's incredibly influential from everything from his Knees turned inward, pigeon-like um, walking to some of these angular dancing that were iconic. Um, often he used chairs and canes. And some people described his, what he did with the body as if, you know, the head is doing one thing, the leg is doing another thing. They're doing, it's a different way of interacting with the body as a machine. In high school, a production of Pippin, was put on, which was one of one of the musicals that Fosse won a Tony for. And the songs from Cabaret and Chicago have always been floating around. If you spend any time with anyone who is has a theatrical or musical background, I believe that they would know who Bob Fosse was and his his whole entire legacy, which I mean, just from the films alone, seeing that these dance moves and these choreographed scenes and sequences, they're still very modern, still very relevant. Fosse was present, but I'm guessing for you, you only saw or was introduced. You were only introduced to Fosse or Fosse's work following the film. Yeah, and uh, film classes in particular. So that's how I encountered all the jazz i think i didn't see cabaret before and maybe when talking about this impact of the film or how it went against the zeitgeist of the time because this is the last musical and i mean we can later talk about whether this really yeah fits what is a musical into yeah 
the notion of musical, if that fits that genre. But, you know, this was the last film that was nominated for an Academy Award until Beauty and the Beast, and that was more like 10 years later or so. And then the next... Mm. Ah, right, Moulin Rouge. Yeah, and then Moulin Rouge. As Lerman, yeah. Yeah, live action musical. Mm. So that was even much later as well. That was uh, around 2000 or so. It was really, for a long time, that was the film that was last prominently present at the Academy Awards and uh, also really was nominated for a lot of Oscars, I think eight mm -hmm. or so, and he wa uh, won a lot of uh, technical uh, Oscars. Yes, if I'm correct, I believe none of them actually even went to Fosse himself. Exactly. And which <laughs> is quite <laughs> yeah. thematically maybe relevant when we start talking about the film. Sure, because he would then not be the Fred Astaire in that respect, right? He, he would not be the person who is really at the center of the attention here in, in that respect. But he was, so he did win Best Director. So, okay. Yeah, he did win Best Director for this film. But yeah, so it did win uh, four Academy Awards, uh, among them Best Director. But yeah, it didn't win Best Film. Yeah, but in, in the context of our podcast, of course, the Pandora is to be favored over the, <laughs> <laughs> over the Academy Award. Um, yeah, and maybe when we talk about his legacy, we should also say that uh, the Chicago film that was finally released, that was a long-term project that Fosse himself wanted to bring to uh, the silver screen, but it has never quite worked out. They've been working on it for a long time. I think they had different actors in the talk, among them Madonna, I think, mm. and it just didn't materialize. Uh, but people say to that day that... Um, this version of Chicago that then came out, I think in, what was it, in uh, 2002, I think, that this couldn't have, you know, this couldn't have brought to to the cinema if it had not been Fosse who had re revitalized. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the musical is still playing and it's now one of the longest playing on Broadway musicals. Right. Um, you go to New York and it will be there. I'm sure it's possibly even in other cities as well. So... But maybe let's uh, move to the meat here, actually. Uh, no, it doesn't make sense, right? Oh, we can move to the meat, the no. meat, uh, the film. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all that jazz, what kind of film is that? Um, you have already given a quick introduction, but I think it is also worth mentioning again that as Fellini inspired as he was, this film is heavily, of course, inspired by Eight and a Half. And Ibu the main actor, I mean, his name is uh, Joe Gideon and the protagonist in the Fellini film is called, uh, what's his name again? Like, Guido. Guido. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you, you can see it's very mouthless here and sort of, sort of reminiscent of the inspiration. Also, um, a long-time cinematographer of Fellini was the DP yes. for this project. Yeah, I forgot his name. Oh, Giuseppe Rotono. Exactly. So a lot of overlap and uh, this should not be denied. And I think it's probably worth have a comparative look at these two films. Yeah, at, an, at another point in time, I mean, honestly, with attacking all that jazz, we found that there's a wealth of information in so many different so many different areas with personal to just even and we haven't even gotten to the meat of the film right. watching experience yet. So yeah. mm -hmm. uh, maybe to to approach this film it would be good to look at this first scene, right? Because this first scene gives us a good idea of the film overall and I think it's always good if the film establishes something within the first five minutes or ten minutes 
which already lays out the themes and hints at certain aspects of the film that will later be relevant. And so seeing this film for the second time now and this opening scene, I still found it very effective and impressive because we already get a sense of who this person is, this uh, Joe Gideon, but we also see his craft, his work. And this is sort of uh, interlaced here. And uh, it's also in between this fun that is really present throughout the film. It, it's very fun, but there is something very heartbreaking that is not too far away, not too far away from the center. Uh, how did you see that? Because you, you saw it for the first time. I wonder uh, if, you know, the film was so old, but I wonder if that is still, if the craft behind that alone is something that you can admire. Um, absolutely. The film starts, I mean, I can give away details, but of it course, starts yeah. every morning with Joe Gideon putting on a Vivaldi concerto in G. He places an eye drop in his eye, places some Alka-Seltzer in a cup. He drinks that, looks into the mirror, and he says, it's showtime. <laughs> oh, no, he showers as well. Showers as well, smokes even under the shower. But <laughs> what I was specifically mm -hmm. referring to, even though this is, of course, important and is sort of a yeah. motif for the film, mm -hmm. but I, I was more referring to this like opening casting scene, you know, where, when there are these mm -hmm. auditions, and uh, you have all these actors who have the shine in their eyes. Mm -hmm. They really want to be part of this production. And the number of them is reduced and reduced mm -hmm. by every shot, basically, by yeah. every shot of the film. And I think this is all already a really good showcase for the editing of the film, right? Yes. Okay, so then going back to that, Bob Fosse said that he wanted to direct that opening scene in a documentary-like style because he thought of the audition process primarily as a, a cattle call and that all previous visual representations of auditions in films that he had seen were somewhat beautifying the audition process. And this exactly was how what how he did it and how he saw it. Um, we do see this thinning out as you speak of and we see this editing sequence which shows as the crowd gets smaller and smaller, we even see them um, appealing I mean, visually, five or six different dancers take turns doing a spin on one spot. And as they spin, they're quickly changing. So we see a different dancer spinning. Then he has the lineup where he finally does quick interview with each one as he looks them up and down and exchanges a little bit of small talk. And we can see how hungry they are and how he is just there exuding kindness in some sense. Right. Yeah, and even as he's kind and as he smiles, he's also very determined, right? He knows exactly whom he wants to have. He knows exactly whom he wants to have. Okay, so this whole entire setup is very interesting because we're in a theater, we're in his home, and we quickly see, we cut to the producers who are also involved. And later on, we cut to his ex-wife and her daughter, their daughter, who is also present in this entire audition sequence. And that sets up the whole entire environment for the subsequent film because, I mean, the whole entire film is about showmanship, display, the artificiality about it, but also the genuine moments that are involved in that as well. Yeah, exactly. And maybe 
already to state that here, the film doesn't establish a contrast between those two things, right? They are really, they are inextricably intertwined. You can you cannot say that uh, here, this is a genuine moment and this is, this is just the facade of showbiz. That's all part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there are many episodes. I mean, for you, when you first saw it, were you familiar? I mean, in the opening scene, how was what was your reaction? I think it was just not that I knew a lot about that, but it was just well choreographed and the editing was really effective because you had sort of this narrative element there already, right? You, by establishing the... Uh, scenery there by establishing the characters it all goes with the music it's more of a montage scene right and at the same time something develops here because uh, we have the audition and at the end we have the team at the end we have the ensemble and at the same time you get a sense of who these characters are and how they relate to each other and of course for the later film this is uh, very important to have that basis at, at the very beginning because you also see how involved even his daughter is mm-hmm. at a very young age. She knows already how it goes and she already sees uh, a specific actor that she likes and she wants to make sure that he picks her <laughs> for the role, which is also, I mean, in terms of uh, gender dynamic, gender politics, it's it's interesting to see how, you know, a woman or like a girl picks another woman, you know, like it's a bit dark. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're all where presenting, like they're, they're all there presenting themselves on stage. And to make that decision, of course, it's, it, it just, it needs to be done. But there is a, there is this gender dimension here as well, right? The man, the, and who, who's, who's also in many ways presented as a genius here, right? Mm-hmm. How he's the one to make this call. He's the one to say yes or no to people. And I think the daughter engaging in that already, that's really, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I was actually thinking about this. Can this film be read as uh, something that's, oh, it's just another male genius who is actively doing whatever it is that he wants to do. He's an addict. He's an addict of the stage. He's addicted to cigarettes, alcohol, speed. That's something actually that I forgot to mention. So this is really, yeah, speed. Every morning he takes um, dextrin. He's also addicted to women. Uh, He's present, but most of all, he's addicted to his work. And it is in some sense because he's addicted to his work that he's pardoned for any of his other vices that he engages in because he is a genius and this film angles this particular genius of his in a way that, for me, when I first saw it, I thought that it was trying to say he was a, somewhat a victim of his own genius, or he was reluctant to his own his own worth ethic or his own desire to be in this industry because it's never a conflict of his. He's just it's just such a natural thing that he must work. He must produce he, he's a he creates and everyone else in his world seems to understand that about him without really passing any form of judgment yeah and perhaps even you know very much uh, uh subscribing to it right mm-hmm. there are certain scenes when other characters really just look for validation they want him to tell them that they are doing a good job they because his 
his judgment is so important to them. Mm-hmm. His, uh, his, because some people have his sympathy, but they want more, you know? They want him to tell them that they are good at what they are doing. There are two scenes in particular uh, with that. There's the one that is this uh, piano player who's just very concerned uh, in this one scene that he plays it right. And he is so fearful of not doing it that he isn't really realizing that he was doing a fine job and what Joe Gideon is uh, angry or worried about has nothing to do with him, really. And there's another scene, of course, that relates to the role of women in this film that is (laughs) when he... When he cheats on his current partner, um, what's her name again? Katie, Katie? Mm-hmm. Uh, played by oh. Anne Rankin. Yeah, Rankin. Yeah, exactly. Who, who's also uh, his muse, like Bob Fosse's muse. So it's this is also another aspect of this entire film how how Bob Fosse casts people here, but yeah, how ma- literally imbricated his own personal life with his projected. Semi. I mean, I don't even know if he says semi or semi autobiographical yeah. film. Yeah, right. Was and in any case, so Anne Rankin plays Katie, his current girlfriend, and at some point she finds out that he's been cheating on her with with another dancer of of the ensemble. When they are in bed together and are caught by the Anne Rankin character. The first worry of the dancer is that she did something wrong. Yeah, and she said, did I screw up? <laughs> exactly. And did I screw anything up? Yeah. And what he says, and that's interesting, no, it's me. You know, I screwed up. And I think this is sort of part of the what some people would argue the redeeming qualities of, of Joe Gideon, right? Mm-hmm. So you brought that up that uh, you could just see it as another of these tales. And in many ways it is, but... It's also a bit more nuanced, I think, and a bit more complicated with uh, Joe Gideon because there's this level of introspection of, and awareness that mm, doesn't excuse what he's doing, but it at least adds more colors to the palette. Mm-hmm. Now, this also becomes thematized in ways, just the idea of lying and honesty. What does that look like on stage? A whole entire idea of creating a production it's all it's all artifice multiple times we have this idea come up that joe gideon is a bullshitter you know there's a line you can't bullshit a bullshitter i don't know and then at another point he says i don't know when the bullshit stops and the truth begins or something like and there's something rather refreshing about even though as you said it's not necessarily pardonable but something refreshing about someone who knows that their actions are what they are, yet they're not hiding them. They're not lying about them to some degree. Of course, still problematic, probably still hurtful in real life, but it's something that I think gives it a different a, a different tone overall. Yeah, and, and I think also maybe uh, this openness of lying, I think if you take that seriously, then you know what you engage with or whom you engage with when you when you are in proximity of uh, Joe Gideon. Because the thing is, he I don't know if we ever see him lying. You know, like at the beginning of the film, he he says, I lie all the time. But then if you really look at the film, I don't think he lies very often. I don't think he lies ever even. Maybe uh, he lied about lying all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's a possibility. And I think that even reflects 
on his loved ones. Because mm-hmm. there's this uh, scene when, and of course we need to talk about that uh, later because this film is sort of split into two parts. The first part is still devoted to him trying to juggle all the balls when it comes to the production of the of the Broadway uh, musical and when it comes to editing this film. This other part is him being in the hospital and imagining a lot of things because uh, he's just overworked and exhausted. And so when he, and I think he, uh, he has heart problems and when he ends up in the hospital and we see a short scene between his ex-wife and the daughter, the daughter asks him what's going on. And the mother, of course, as many parents would do, says, oh, he's just exhausted. Mm-hmm. And the daughter just looks through it and says, you're lying to me, right? Mm-hmm. And the mother says, yes. So it's all, in this but film, it's, it's very open, mm-hmm. you know, like lies are never really lies because we know what they are. You know, we see lies in their functioning, in their like white lies nature of making making our lives, I don't know, like perhaps more manageable mm-hmm. and more redeeming as well. This is also interesting to me because I was just thinking about this scene and exhaustion. How can one really be lying about exhaustion? There's something about that that made me wonder too. Is the daughter just in a, unable to see her father as exhausted. I think in the subsequent scene, doctors do claim that he is actually exhausted. And so but that's another... But that was because we have like two doctors, right? There we are... have the serious ones and we have the <laughs> the ones that are basically just, not charlatans, but you know, they just affirm what he wants to hear in order to mm-hmm. keep working, right? Mm-hmm. So are those the ones that are the serious ones that tell him to change his life or... <laughs> I would have to check okay. again, but I think they might be the serious ones. Okay. This is also, since we're talking about truth and lies, many times in the film, people approach Joe Gideon. We have the one that's most frequent, Angelique, 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 sorry, saying this with an accent, Angelique, and played by, by Jessica Lange. Who was also, you know. Who was also for a time in a relationship with Bob Fosse. It's quite interesting because I saw a little interview where she explained that the scenes with her character were shot after all the other scenes were shot. And thus, Fosse had run out of budget and he really, really, really had to push in order to get the budget to shoot these three scenes with um, with Lang's character. Okay, this we need to get back to in a minute or so. We need to get back to that in a minute, yes. So Angelique asks Joe Gideon a series of words, family, work, women. Death. And Gideon responds with just one word sort of answers as well. And there's this element that she plays, for me at least, a type of a different, a variation on the femme fatale. I don't know how you viewed it, but just someone that he, he never bullshits with yeah. her. It's very clear that there's some vulnerability in that. And she she's like the interlocutor for her, his conscience and as someone who just questions his actions. So they're, because the editing in this film is so incredible. I mean, we haven't really spoken to the confusion slash way that the film carries you between all these things of him editing stand up, him producing a theater, him interacting with his family, but this is all, and him interacting with Angelique, but they're all done in a way that's highly suggestive, highly manipulative and fast paced. There was one review that I saw that said things are just thrown, the whole entire story is hurled at you. That's how I kind of felt when watching this. 
because I'm not sure if we mentioned that uh, these Angelique sequences, they don't take place in our reality. They are mm -hmm. in his inner world, you know, in his, it's this sort of mind palace mm -hmm. he's constructing there. So what we perceive as reality, this is interlaced with these scenes that are taking place more like in a world beyond or something. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, we don't know what this is all about. Mm -hmm. But as the story progresses, it becomes more clearer. Mm -hmm. As some sort of fantasy, some flirtation with the angel of death. Right. I mean, this is also reflected in the name, right? Mm -hmm. Angelique. Yes. Angel. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you just mentioned something that we should talk about as well. What was that again? The one thing that I do quite like about the character of Angelique is that she is the only character that doesn't necessarily, or the only woman that doesn't dance or sing. I find that quite endearing in some sense, because given that Joe Gideon's character somehow journeys in this fantasy, in this desire, in this whatever seduction. Perhaps it's a death wish. Perhaps it's something. It's very, it could be interpreted in so many different ways that the woman that he eventually will spend his, not life, but <laughs> the other with is someone who does not engage in show business. Yeah, and I mean, there are so many things you just brought up that I would like to comment on. When we took uh, when we talk about the femme fatale, I I mean, if you say it's a variation of the femme fatale, then it's a very strong variation that departs from the traditional depiction of the femme fatale because usually it's depicted as a deceiving character, and she is not doing that. Even though you could argue that she is luring him into death, right? Yes, you could say that, mm -hmm. and. This is, of course, played with in the film as well, because there's a moment when when one would expect him to say, I have to die. Mm -hmm. And he is resisting mm -hmm. saying that because the closer he gets to that point, the closer he is to Angelique. Mm -hmm. But he just said something else that I also wanted to comment on. Not dancing, not singing. Ah, yeah, exactly. So uh, that's a very good point, I think. That's an important point, I think, to make here as well, because Joe Gideon is such a... In a way, he's so unable to engage in what we perceive as conventional relationships. So there's this scene that is very, very much my favorite scene of the film, where his girlfriend Katie and his daughter spontaneously choreograph a dance scene for him. And I got the idea that, hmm, why are they doing this? Of course, it's just fun. I mean, he's a director, a choreographer, but I also think... In order to get his validation, his love, you need to do that. You need to put on a show and a good one, uh, that is. So they're doing that and there you can be sure that him as a spectator in that scene, this is really when to me he seems to be most in love with these people around him. Mm -hmm. So it's as if they need to take this detour in order to get there. It's not direct, you know, you can't say I love you or something. You need to put on a show that aligns with his expectations. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a really good observation that this Angelique is the only one that's not doing that for him. That's perhaps also why in the end he feels attracted to her because this is the person who doesn't play by his rules and he has to subordinate himself to her. Yeah, no, there, there are two things that I think about that. In this relationship that he has with Anjali, it seems it's not clear whom is seducing whom to some degree, which I think is why I would take it, they take it as a variant of the so-called femme fatale, because the femme fatale eventually, usually 
leads a somewhat naive character to their ultimate demise. But eventually, Angelique being the character that she represents will lead Gideon to to his to everyone's earthly ultimate demise. And perhaps we should just also maybe talk a bit more about what happens in this second half, right? When he is brought to the hospital and he has cardiac surgery, I think that's also autobiographical. You know, this is what happened to uh, Bob Fosse after one of the phases of his life when he was most productive and most overworked, mm -hmm. right? And this is also integrated here into the film. And I think that's just such a fascinating idea, right? To now have this creator, this artist, who even when in the hospital, lying on his deathbed, cannot stop creating. I mean, it's a point that was stressed often that you can read up a lot on, but I think it's for that time, it was something that could not be seen elsewhere. I think he was obsessed or interested in death and hospitalization following his first heart attack. Um, he still went on to, I believe, foster the man as well as Gideon, his projection went on to chain smoke and, and to indulge in vices that one would advise against if they have coronary issues. Right. I think some people even think of all that jazz as Fosu's prediction of his own death because prior to another massive production that he was working on, he did indeed die of heart attack. Right. Uh, the thing you have listened to at the beginning of the podcast, there was uh, Rob Scheider and who commented on that, right? Mm -hmm. How... Bob Fosse wanted to direct his own death because mm -hmm. there's only one way to do that for him. So tell me about that, Patrick, or because we haven't even talked about directly directing your own death. This fantasy, in some sense, as Gideon's health is in decline uh, in the last 10, 15 minutes of the film, we have this a complete spectacle filled with everyone in his life acting, performing. The hospital bed is literally the, the director's chair that Joe Gideon is playing in as he observes. Right. And this is really proportionally to the restraints he faces when lying or being bound to the bed, the more his mind deranges, right? <laughs> the more the more ways he finds to perform or ways to direct new numbers. And it's also interesting that he's not just focusing on that. We also see this scene. I mean, from that time when he's in the hospital, I think we cannot really be certain of veracity of any of the scenes, right? But then we see a younger John Lithgow, this other director who sort of wants to have a directing gig, and we see him meeting the producers the producers who are always portrayed here as just looking after the money. And of course, it's it's really, uh, you know, this is understandable because it's, I mean, it's mind-blowing. This, this film mirrors what's actually going on with the film. So uh, all that jazz has, at a number of times, it is uncertain whether they can continue shooting this film, right? And then this idea is incorporated into the film itself. And then we see John Lithgow meeting the producers. Among the producers, there's already this sort of consensus that it wouldn't be all too bad if he actually died in the hospital yes. because it could be the first musical that is profitable on Broadway without ever opening because of the insurances. insurances. Yeah. yeah, it's really funny. And then... You know, that's my reading. I'm not saying that this is uh, the film, but my reading is that 
this entire John Lithgow thing is just the paranoia of Bob Fosse, you know, like he doesn't want to have this competitor there who also has this script done and he's, we see how much work he's put into like making comments on this one script that he, that he read for the uh, producers and, but really downplaying it. Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. I didn't do much, but of course he must have spent nights uh, on that. And it's really, it's really fascinating that even this is on Joe Gideon's mind and one can imagine that this might be autobiographically uh, inspired as well, that when Fosse had to face the reality of the hospital, what might his mind go on about, you know, in that time? No, I, I mean, it's not the first time either, but this is also playing in line with why is Joe Gideon so sympathetic? Because there is a display of his insecurities you know, these producers and this director, they're, they're vultures in some sense. And this, I mean, just on any person in life, when we think, oh, there's someone else who actually might benefit if I'm gone. Right. That's, that's really, it, it's such a universal feeling, but it's also something that I mean, in the intensity of the show of, and the spectacle and, and who's going to entertain and then the, the crux being that Joe Gideon himself never really speaks about money. It's just always these these producers, which were part of I don't know new new Hollywood, the um, the time of new American cinema coming to and bringing in these independent producers who also could have their own stake in a production, but with money being always somewhere at the back of the minds of someone because how does a production get made with money even if the artist or the director or the choreographer in this case doesn't necessarily think about or want to or even have that as their their impetus for creation yeah and of course this is this is very much the compromise uh cinema has always been or let's say here broadway production. I mean, there's statistics out there, right? Like how few of the Broadway productions are actually profitable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course they are portrayed very unfavorably in this film, all these producers as, as if they are only out for the money. But of course that is, first of all, that's the job. And if they are not there, who can even afford to bring up a production, right? So it makes a lot of sense. And the time he spends on the editing on on this film that, by the way, I mean, you know, it's uh, also a reflection of his own production process of his film Lenny. It, yeah. There's also this mirroring again, right? Here we had the all that jazz reflecting on its own production of being short on money and short on time. And we have the same with his previous film Lenny. You know, yeah, like and film, making a film, there's always a compromise and you need money in order to make a film. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with reminding him again and again that money is scarce. But at the same time, you know, Fosse also insists on his own genius, right? There's this scene with the editor. He is the editor mm -hmm. in that scene with the producers. This is also another, like, massive insecurity for someone who is a creative in some sense. But we have two scenes, I would say. One, he shows whoever, the, I suppose, the producer or maybe the agent of Lenny, a, a version, a cut of the stand-up routine that is amazing. It's incredible. The, he, he leaves him alone, the agent, with the cut. 
And the agent or producer is amazed, astounded by this. But much later, we also have the critic come in while um, Joe Gideon has already been sick in bed and has been hospitalized for some time. And someone on TV reviews his produced and finished version of of this stand-up. A very funny scene. (laughs) A very funny scene. Elderly lady, like old avant-garde critic type, very erudite, very eloquent, but also not sparing of critique. Yes, no. And and I think he's in a room of, with other people. One of the critiques of her critique is she's not reviewing film. She's just showing how, you know, how, how what is it? How smart she is yeah, or something. how smart she is. Or <laughs> yeah. Which is quite funny. But this critique genuinely hurts him and throws him back yeah. to another episode or another, uh, he has tribulations with his heart. Exactly. So like on two levels, it, Hurts him, right? <laughs> yeah, this this film is very difficult to talk about in general because there's just so much that's going on and so many different levels. So much going on. E- even this thing you just mentioned that he's so hurt by this. We read this article where they discuss the narcissism inherent in that film. And apparently often with narcissism, it's the case that you at the same time can be very convinced of yourself and your qualities but you're always also very much anxious that mm-hmm. what you're doing is not good enough mm-hmm. and what you're bringing to the table is not sufficient. Mm-hmm. And I think in this scene, this is sort of confirmed, you know, he is that narcissist. Mm-hmm. He is a very self-aware narcissist. Um, one thing I found too, not to drive too much away from the film, because there's so many things that we could still find to talk about. Was I watched a 1997 or 1999 Charlie Rose interview with Anne Reinking mm-hmm. and Gwen Verdon, as well as another woman who was playing in um, in the main role as a Sally Bowles, I believe. Anne Rein decided to do some form of revival of Bod Fosse's choreography, and it was just really incredible to see this, you know, post death what happened to this genius of an artist. The women had been working together and they were asked by by Charlie Rose, well, how did you find all that jazz? Is all that jazz about, what? what's true in all that jazz about Bob Fosse, the man? And they said that they didn't really find Bob Fosse completely in there, but he found that they found that the most genuine thing was his relationship to the women in his life, mm. being them, <laughs> essentially. And that currently... The daughter and and the daughter, oh gosh, who so that was in the film Michelle. Michelle. But yeah. his real life daughter, Natalie, and with the Katie, so the dance sequence that you spoke of, so and Reinkin. And I thought that was quite endearing just to see. And they essentially this just this base understanding of this was a man who was problematic. At some point, Anne Reinkin essentially said uh, I want to find the exact thing. So he, he, she says, this is a man who would lose control, but he was a good father and a good friend. And he, this is the same man who would put a green tomato on a windowsill and wait for it to turn red. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, that, that may be true, but I know also that there are dancers who think you're an absolute tyrant. Are you a tyrant? I think I'm tough. 
Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know what exactly tyrant means. I think I'm, uh, I demand a lot from dancers, but I, I like them, and generally they seem to like me, and I'm very happy that they've worked with me. Because if you put through somebody and demand 100% of them, uh, the next job they go to, it's easier for them to do it. Uh, the problem is that most, uh, most people don't ask enough of the other person they're working with. Be surprised how much of us want to fulfill that if it's asked of us. And this understanding, this mutual understanding between all the women, I suppose, in his life, or the ones who stayed, the ones who are still doing, or who did, because they've all passed by now, of if you want someone in your life, you figure out a way to make it work, which I thought was very lovely. And that's the thing that shows in all that jazz as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, you can easily say how women are just marginalized in that film, right? And that he primarily entertains superficial relationships with them. But then if you look at the most endearing scenes of that film, when he talks to either his ex-wife, mm -hmm. when his one scene, I mean, there's this fantastic choreographed, like fantastically and fantastic and fantastically choreographed scene of a number called Erotica. Mm -hmm. And no, yeah, is it yes, erotica? Right. Erotica. Yeah, erotica. So it's a riff, or like a pun with like an airline, but very erotically charged. And at the end of the number, when all the producers, you know, they just worried about, oh, we lost the family audience, for instance, you know, they just think about the like the black and red numbers, of course. But um, then he's sort of con conflicted and goes to his ex-wife, who was also a longtime collaborator of his, and he asks her for her opinion, and she, she says, it's the best thing you ever did, you motherfucker, or is this something like that, or you bastard, you know? Like, yeah. And, <laughs> this, this is very nice, because you see they have this professional relationship mm -hmm. that cannot really be strained by whatever cruel things he, he does to her, mm -hmm. but there is this mutual understanding that will always connect them in a way. And I think mm -hmm. the film pointed that out very cleverly and without glamorizing it or anything, mm -hmm. it's rather, uh, you get it both, mm -hmm. you know, you get it both. You get you get the dirt. And by the way, it's a very dirty film as well. It's a very 70s film, isn't it? Like, uh, you can really tell this is a movies of the 70s because many films of the 70s are very dirty, are very, like, have a subjective camera, there's just dirt everywhere. You know, there's, everywhere there's dirt. I did find it grimier than Cabaret, mm -hmm. even though I was sort of expecting a similar, since I'm, I only watched All That Jazz recently and Cabaret even more recently um, and following All That Jazz. But I thought there'd be a similar aesthetic or a similar griminess from 1930s Weimar Republic. Well, of course, Germany. like, um, you know, it, I mean, you can even explain that just historically, right? Like the Nixon years in the United States, of course, that there was a period of great austerity overall, right? And it's just good to see that reflected in the films of that era as well. You know, it would be weird if that were not to be seen, even though the people who lived through that mm. uh, very much experienced that. Yeah. There, of course, there are another. There are a few things I really want to talk about as well, but I also um, I'm conscious of the time we've already spending here. For instance, how about his split into two Joe Gideons in the hospital? I think that's a fascinating idea. You know, like 
there's there's one Joe Gideon who is bound to the bad and can't really move, can't really do anything. The only thing he's left with is his imagination. But then there's the other Joe Gideon he he imagines who's still you know in full power. So he, he he's still the man he projects himself to be. And I find this also interesting because in a review of the time in the New York Times by Vincent Canby, he said, Mr. Foss's projection of himself as a kid who'd rather die than grow up. And he compared or likened it to mm. Peter Pan. And, and and I think that's, you know, I'm not, not saying that this is my reading, but I think it's an interesting one if, if you think about it, right? But I also think that doesn't take what seriously. Oh, uh, What does that even mean? No, I mean, like, in the end, right, he dies, and he, you could say, okay, he, he could take on a more conventional path of engaging with, with his family, you know, like, be more receptive to their wants and be more I emotionally open to them as well. Like, you could make that argument, you know. I just think that sort of, that misunderstands the determinism of this character to some extent, you know, he... He is that person. I don't. I'm not saying he's that genius, mm -hmm. but he is that person who's truly committed to his craft. You know, and if you if you take that away, and if you say, "Oh, you're not ju just unmature enough to step away from that, and also care about all these other things," then you are not re really understanding who he is. Do you know what I mean? No, I would completely agree with you. I think perhaps it's also maybe we're jaded by our contemporary time, which sort of knows better in some sense. But I do think that it is hard to say that because, so I'm now going back on what I just said in some way, because I need to think about that. <laughs> but I think if anything is clear, it's obvious that whatever entertainment is, is also at stake. I don't know if there is this determinism of which you speak, but there is the determinism to make something a success and to make some and the fear that it will be that it will not be received well and in that there is also a completest perfectionist tendency in the character of Joe Gideon in how he must imagine Fosse to be i mean i think he literally said of his film when he made it that he wanted it to be a success this is also a bit of a quip a bit of a joke it elicited laughs but at the same time there's a seriousness about that and I say that it is in, in some sense. For me, I guess this this Peter Pan thing of, of, of someone who prefer to die than grow up. I mean, who, who doesn't die is what my response to that is. But in entertainment, people don't want to see that. Even nowadays, I mean, we have some, I can't help but think of, I don't know, maybe most recently Fleabag. And how the comedy, once again, is turning to a tragic comedy. Um, there's something about Fosse's work that refuses to just solely be about the complete hedonism, I suppose, or just pleasure or joy or just something that's just completely entertaining all the time, at all moments, everywhere. And that he does search for that downturn of reality of life. I mean, in watching this, I was most touched by the end sequence when he sings, bye-bye life, bye-bye happiness, hello emptiness, hello loneliness. Yeah, and, and that really sticks with you as well, right? Just uh, really, they were stuck to my ears for, for quite a while. 
and and I can't help but just think and and Joe Gideon does this in a way that makes that that physically he looks like he's elated in singing this, and I couldn't help but think, is this how we combat death in some form? Is this how we combat our own mortality? We fill it, we fill it with stuff to the brim in order we fill it with style, we fill it with aesthetic pizzazz, we fill it with all sorts of something to avoid the inevitable, the cutting off before our time is done, which is another thing that we could technically talk about, but I don't know if we have the time to. Yeah, uh, and perhaps because we did mention it and you just referred back to it, this uh, last scene. So then we see a number of people who, from his like, close proximity of friends and family, they they perform for him as well. And it's interesting, and I also read on that and you too in this one piece where the role of the daughter here was discussed because she she performs this this number, mm-hmm. but she's actually not right there. Like she's a bit too young, and you can tell because she you know she has this cigarette in her hand, but she ca- you know she coughs because of course she's not a smoker, <laughs> and uh, she wears these high heels that don't really fit, and she doesn't know how to move herself. And that so it's we can see that this is just his projection of of her, but all you know, and that. She he tries very much to make her a sort of successor of him uh, in in the showbiz, right? She is basically raised in the theater, but at the same time, perhaps she doesn't blend in perfectly there. She, perhaps I, she doesn't yeah, fit in there. I mean, I wonder too if there's some some elements of him being conscious, given that he himself, exactly, Fosse started at thirteen performing professionally. Yeah, and but perhaps there's a scene in this film, right? There is a scene in this film where um, he's in a burlesque or a cabaret or a vaudeville back theater, and he's very young, and he is exposed to physical and the, the body. Not I would I don't want to use the word vulgar, but just the the very open um, advances of the older women who are also performers. Oh, I mean, you can be a bit more direct, I think. <laughs> so they are topless, you know, and they approach him and he's uh, maybe 13, 15, 16 or so. Very young performer is about to get on stage and mm-hmm. they approach him and then, yeah, he has an erection, ha- ha- has to enter the stage and then uh, on the stage, y- you you can actually see this wet you know, mm-hmm. this wet stain in, wet in his stain. trousers. And this is also interesting because it points to some form of sexual humiliation on display to a public audience, but it plays with that too, as it's also the birth of Joe Gideon's character that, that um, normally we think of peeing on stage. I think this liquid that we see could be either pee or... Something more, I suppose, just more, what would you say? like Less liquid. <laughs> yes, something more less liquid. Yeah, yeah. But more... I would tend to the latter one. Empower, not empowering, but something that more sexually strong. Yeah, it's a bit like, uh, you know, I was thinking of that film in that Imodova film um, from 2019. Glory. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a sexual awakening. And in that sense... I don't know if there was a 
sexual awakening, but it was in any case very sexual and it was something that, you know, stuck with him because we see this scene uh, after all these years still being part of his mind, right? And then immediately right after, we have another scene with Angelique and who we are to believe is Jogirin's mother. And Jogirin's mother is saying that he spent all his time there, but he never looked at the girls. He never looked at the women. He was just focused on doing whatever it was that he was doing. So I think, I mean, to speak to his determinism or to his craft or whatever. Well, of course, I mean, yeah, I mean, but this is very much a broken portrait of it, like very <laughs> much a distorted portrait of his mom, right? I mean, how is she depicted there? Like yeah, she's hunched cooking. over, cooking yeah. over the stove, <laughs> yeah. you know, of course, completely desexualized there, you know, as one would expect a mother to be portrayed. With. Yeah, in some sense, I think earlier in the film, when he's asked these things by Angelique, family, he says, screwed up, work, all there, women, hope, death, he'd like it with dignity. Then he gets to mother. He says, kind of chubby, jolly, a bit sexy. <laughs> Father, lying, cheat, womanizer. And then says, you would have liked him. Yeah, right. <laughs> Angelique. Ah, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah, okay. I think we have to come to a close soon. One thing I think we didn't mention just in passing here, this film he's editing that's okay. also sort of mocking this concept of five stages of grief. Right, and the film oh, yeah. sort of takes on that structure. Anger, and... denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. <laughs> exactly. This is sort of interlaced with the o overall uh, plot structure here. Mm -hmm. If you well, well, want to talk of a plot. It's of course, okay, there's one last aspect I want to talk about. And then, because that's the interesting part here, you will tell me, but also the listeners, what our next movie is going to be next week. So you also have the chance to prepare for that if you want to, like if you want to see that movie again or for the first time. Mm -hmm. But this last thing I wanted to talk about is silence. You know, there are two instances of silence here. Mm -hmm. One is when he is in a like table read about this, about his show that he's he feels sort of detached from mm -hmm. because it is changed to more, more commercial tastes, I suppose. And then there's this moment of introspection when we just hear his breath, him breathing, and don't hear all the people anymore around him. So this suspension of sound, I find this interesting also because of the closing credits at the end, right? Mm -hmm. So at first, you know, at the end of the film, after his last performance is over, time to say goodbye. Or like, uh, is that uh, time to say goodbye or... Goodbye life. Goodbye life. Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. So after that, we, before it really climaxes, you know, before it has its culmination, we just mm -hmm. in the hospital again, we have the zipper, the, like the body bag, the zipper, and then it's over. But then we hear the frenetic voice of Ethel, Ethel, Ethel Merman and her, there's no business like show business. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's, of course, very ironic to place that there. But afterwards, at the very end, we just have silence. Mm. And I think those are two instances of silence. Is that the void? Is that the, no is that the nothingness? If you don't create, if there's no creation anymore, like, how did you read that? These two instances of silence, I was just compelled by that. Because huh. I think that's perhaps the most radical thing in a film that is 
so charged with performing in mm. every instance, right? Mm. I mean, I think it speaks to what I said a little bit earlier, just this idea of what does it mean to entertain 24-7 or to have that on your mind. Maybe you're not a people pleaser, but I wonder too if Fossey could stand silence as a human being. I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm not aware of it. It looks like Joe Gideon is always doing something. He's always active. I mean, he doesn't even, I mean, he puts on Vivaldi throughout his morning routine. There's never, it feels like a moment of silence or of introspection in this sense of silence. For me, it's also just what it hit hardest, perhaps an ultimate manipulation for my own self-reflection of just wondering, you know, once the show is over, depending on whatever life it is that you've lived, there will be that silence. And and then I couldn't help but that resonated with me in this ultimate idea of regardless of what I have just spent about two hours watching on film, this is the unifying, one of the unifying things that just really hit to make this film Right, the incredible film that it is, and to put that all into a different uh, perspective. Uh huh. But it's also, to me, it seems rather pessimistic, right? Because in 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 the world of creation, in the world of performance, we want things to last, right? So you would wish that there is no silence, that there will always be something that people memorize, you know that people will remember in in the future. So this is kind of silly, but Bye Bye, My Life Goodbye, or whatever this song is, is actually a variation of a Simon and Garfunkel song, right? Right. And the other song that I think of now is The Sound of Silence. There has been a study recently that's come out trying to investigate whether silence is itself perceived by us human beings as a sound. So whether the sound mm -hmm. of silence is Thing. And thus, if it is a sound, if silence is not nothingness, it may be in some optimistic way, I'm just playing with what you just said, the sound of silence is what lasts. Yeah, well, on these notes, I think I can't top that. You know, <laughs> We will come to an end here just to get my trivia out here. I just want to say that this movie sort of bonded um, Fossey and Scheider. You know, they became friends in the making of the film and they remained friends until Fossey died. And just a sweet little anecdote to illustrate who Fossey was is this interesting interview with Alan Heim, who is the editor of this film. And he also won the Oscar for this film because the editing is really phenomenal, mm. especially if you think of analog editing, right? How much of a hassle that is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he said uh, there's this one scene and this is actually in the film. So there is a cameo of Alan Heim, the editor, and he's supposed to raise his eyebrows. <laughs> and but he uh, Fosse wants it to be very subtle mm -hmm. and there are several shots and he's never quite satisfied. And at the end, they settle with this last one that was supposedly the most subtle, but mm -hmm. not really subtle enough for Fosse. Then Fosse asks him if, if they could just look into what they shot before. So they go through all the edits and yeah, it's all really not to his satisfaction. And Fosse then, he went on, not complaining about Haim at all. 
he was like, why can't I do this? You know, like he took it really personally that he couldn't direct Haim in a way that he found satisfying. And he, he says, uh, so Haim says, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm, I'm an editor. And then Fawcett said, yeah, but you are a human being and I am, you know, I can direct human beings. It just shows you who he is in a way that he didn't put the blame on Haim, you know, he really took it personally. He thought he himself was at fault here. And I think it's certainly a fascinating character. And if you want to look him up, there are a lot of interesting interviews online as well, also on YouTube. And I think he's a very charismatic persona and you can see how he could lures so many people into projects, but also into his personal affairs. There are a lot of things we didn't get to say here, but with uh, such a film, you know, it's just inevitable that you can't say all the things you want to say. Mr. Fossey, along with Baryshnikov and uh, Balanchine and Robbins, and he, he's one of the great, great choreographers of our time. And choreography is not something that's written down like music or... Uh, or art, it's something that's passed on orally. And uh, this movie passes on this man's work. Eliana, let us know next week, what are we going to talk about? I'm excited as well, I have no idea. Yeah, so, well, first I want to thank you for choosing All That Jazz. It's a film that I had been meaning to watch. And I was between two films for this upcoming week. One by a female director, which would be nice, and we will get to soon. And the other one, because recent uh, conversations have sort of sparked this revisit, I think is the one I'll choose, which will be Festin, Thomas Winterberg's 1999, now 1998, Dogme 95 film. Oh, that's lovely. I love that film. Yes, I do remember... I believe I introduced it to you. And so it is relevant because it won the jury prize at Cannes in 1998. That's great. I'm looking forward to that. And I thank you very much for this as well. It has been a lot of fun. As I said, still a lot of things that need to be said on that film. But so, that so we leave up to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.